I love that video, and uh, it's almost like a summary of everything we've studied so far in this series, isn't it? That uh, the shepherd leads the flock, and they hear his voice, they respond, and they go with him to greener pastures. And he himself is the gate through which they go through to get to those greener pastures. And he's a faithful and good shepherd. And the flock stays together except for that little straggler guy at the end. I hope you saw him. He's real significant for our message today. And he's just a running for all he's worth to catch back up, isn't he? So remember that little guy as we focus another week on John chapter 10. Um, Think of yourself not as that little guy who's trying to catch up, but one of those sheep in the center of that flock. And I don't know if there's hundreds or thousands on that picture. It's a beautiful picture. But if you're in the center of that flock, together, moving with the rest of the flock, following the shepherd, you're safe there. You're secure there. Even if a robber comes, even if a wolf comes and tries to scatter, if you're central in the flock, centered on Jesus Christ and moving with him, you're secure. You're held there. And in the passage we're going to look at this morning, that's why Jesus says, no one will snatch my sheep out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Because they're secure in the flock and they're, they're following after me. But as we've seen in this series, Jesus also says, beware, little sheep, beware. Because there's thieves and robbers out there. There's bad people, they want to do damage to the flock, and these thieves, they come to steal, kill, and destroy. I think if you can advance the screen, I think we got that that scripture up here. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. As Nashwan said the week he taught, the thief comes to take, the shepherd gives, the shepherd provides. And then later, Jesus helps us understand some of the strategies of these thieves and robbers. He said, this, the wolves come and they attack the flock and scatter it. And that word scatters is so important. Because we see the evil one kind of do this time and time again. If he can get a sheep isolated, like that little guy who was trying to catch back up. <laughs> he has a leg up on stealing life destroying life. Church, we must understand and embrace Jesus' teaching in this text, not only about him as good shepherd, but the reality is that we do have an enemy. And we can't always um, cognitively or accurately describe how that enemy works and specifically what he does, but Jesus teaches us he comes to steal, kill, and destroy And these wolves work to scatter the flock. We must embrace this teaching as maybe crazy and even sometimes irrational as it seems. Because this is truth that Jesus has laid out to us. And the evil one will do everything possible to leverage death because the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But praise God, Jesus has defeated death. We just sang about it over and over again. So like he was raised from the dead, those who trust in him, sheep of his flock, will also be raised from the dead. But the evil one tries to leverage death because it's the worst he can do to us. And so one of our precious little sheep of this flock, the flock of Crossroads, has uh, kind of been a recipient of this strategy 
of our enemy over the last year and a half. And Jess Dunlap is here with us this morning and her husband Austin, Austin. And she's going to share with us later. But for you to understand the victory and the security we have in Christ, first of all, you have to know this story. So here's Jess's story. My brother and I were very close. I have countless childhood stories where my brother just displayed a selfless protection over my sister and I. He always tried to be there for us when we needed him. He was a remarkable older brother and an amazing man. But most importantly, he had an acceptance and a love for our savior. However, even with that love and that acceptance, he was a man with a very deep-rooted sin. That sin led to a lot of hardships, and those hardships led my brother to make an impulsive decision to end his own life. The best way that I can describe the events of June 13th is that it was the closest to hell that I had ever felt. I was the last person to see and speak with my brother, quite possibly just moments before it happened. I later had a realization that in that moment when I saw him for the last time, he was in the actual act of preparing the way that he would end his life. That realization annihilated me with a heaviness of guilt. I blamed myself for not doing more. I blamed myself for not trying harder. I felt a lot of guilt for the traumatic events of that day and the devastating pain my family was in. I blamed myself for not fighting harder to help him in the worst moment of his earthly life. I blamed myself for walking away. That guilt spiraled me into a deep darkness, a darkness that I felt like I deserved to be in, a darkness that I felt like I needed to be in alone. I started having really horrific nightmares and those nightmares started playing out even when I was awake. I started seeing a physical representation of what my brother looked like in the moment of his death. It was so real and so vivid that if I would have walked towards it, I could have physically touched him. Around this time, I started feeling just emotionally numb to any kind of positive emotion. I stopped eating. I stopped sleeping. I was especially too scared to tell anybody what I saw. I didn't even feel like I could tell my husband. I completely convinced myself that I was unstable and that I was going crazy. The summer that Jess's brother passed away, I was placed into a cultivating holy beauty group. Um, and if you're wondering if the Lord's in this story, you know that he is. 
because we met at six in the morning and I do not do mornings. Uh, but I did stay faithful to the group and we were set to meet the Wednesday after he had passed away, he passed away on a Saturday. And I just felt really convicted to invite Jess that um, I would take her to group that morning if she would be willing to go. So I left early that morning to go pick her up for Bible study and she had told me she'd probably still be getting ready so I could just come into the house. And so I walked into the garage and I was immediately met with a vision. Um, I had never met Jess's brother. I don't even know that I had ever seen a picture of him, but I knew who this vision represented and that it was her brother um, at the time that he had passed away. And it was so real, it was so vivid. Um, honestly, I was terrified. And I hadn't even left the driveway and I called another member of our small group and I told her what I had seen and that we needed to pray and we needed to pray hard because her family was in the midst of spiritual warfare. And I really, I don't think I even knew what that meant. Um, I believe the Lord prompted those words for me. I knew that we needed to pray, but I had no idea what would happen for Jess over the next couple of months. That night changed the trajectory of my grief journey. I fell into a very raw and vulnerable place where I finally confessed out loud to Lindsay that I was seeing my dead brother around my house. Lindsay had a really strong, immediate emotional response to this. And that's when she shared her experience with me. After that night, it was made very clear to me that the enemy was trying to stake a victory in my brother's death. It was made very clear to me that I was being held captive to the lie of guilt. I understood that I was battling darkness. Uh, the next chapter in that story is a remarkable chapter, and we'll get to that later in the hour. But when Jess said after that time with Lindsay and she had shared that story with her, then she, she knew without any doubt that she was battling darkness. Um, it was really the turning point, that recognition. And that's the reality of Jesus' instruction that we have to embrace and be wise to because it just happens. But what I want to elevate this morning is we're held secure in Jesus' hand, as I already mentioned. So I want to read to you John chapter 10, verses 22 through 30, the next section of this text that we've been studying. And this is kind of a different narrative, but clearly John connects it 
to the prior part of chapter 10 that we studied, and you'll see why as we read it. So on this occasion, it says, then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. It's a legit question. But Jesus' response is great. Jesus answered, I did tell you. Told you very plainly. But you do not believe. And he said, the works I do in my Father's name testify about me. That should be enough to convince you. But you do not believe because you're not my sheep. He goes on, he says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, so no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. Mm. The main point I want to make this morning, church, with you, and you can fill this in in your sermon notes on the back of the bulletin, is that sheep are 100% secure in Jesus' flock. Sheep are 100% secure in Jesus' flock. We'll unpack this for you a little bit. But just think of what Jesus said to us about the sheep of his flock in contrast to the disbelieving Jewish leaders. Three things out of this text. First one, Jesus gives his sheep eternal life. Verse 28. And then Jesus said that his sheep, and I'm going to use a word here that I'm not even sure is really a word, but you know, we preachers take liberty sometimes. Um, Jesus said, my sheep are unsnatchable. Yeah, I don't know if that's a word. They're unsnatchable. And I love the rationale he uses. He says, first of all, in 28, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then verse 29, he says, because my Father is greater than anything. So no one can snatch them out of my hand because I and the Father are one. We are in union. So it's not even possible for any force, any darkness any oppression, to snatch sheep in Jesus' flock away from his hands. And then Jesus goes on and says that he and the Father are one. That's the last verse I read. And so if Jesus and the Father are one, and we as sheep of his flock are united with him, we are in union with this holy trinity. No wonder Jesus said nobody can snatch them out of my hand. We are held securely by the Trinitarian God of the universe. Wow. Meditate on that a few months. That'll do something to you. We are secure in Jesus Christ when we're united with him as sheep of his flock. This idea is known as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It was articulated very well hundreds of years ago in the Protestant Reformation by the key reformers and i want to just take a minute or two here and help you understand that because there's quite a bit of misunderstanding around this very important doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and so the first statement i'm going to give you is, is really not my words as much as kind of adapted from others who've summarized the doctrine and here it is believers persevere in faith as they are preserved 
by God's grace and for our emphasis this morning in the flock of Jesus. Believers will persevere in faith as they're preserved by God's grace in his flock. That's what Jesus said. Nobody's going to snatch them out of my hand. They're, they're held secure. And so those sheep, it's in their DNA to stay in the flock, to persevere. Now, I want to distinguish this from some other language that's often used kind of in this discussion and I don't think is, is quite, can lead to some misunderstanding, and that's the phrase eternal security. You maybe have heard that more even than the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. As people talk about this idea of eternal security. And sadly, I, I think people have come to embrace this idea that, man, once I make some kind of decision for Jesus, it doesn't matter what I do next, I'm good. And so I want to quote to you now a, a theologian I respect highly named Marcus Johnson. He's a, pro, he's a pro professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Johnson says this, A doctrine of eternal security that asserts that believers are eternally saved irrespective of the carnality of their lives, including the act of apostasy, is to be rejected strenuously. Now, let me use more familiar language here. What he's saying is that is if, if this idea of eternal security, if, if that asserts that believers are eternally saved regardless of how they live or what they do, all the way including up to the act of apostasy, and to help you understand what apostasy, apostasy is this deliberate, intentional disillusion of a relationship. Apostasy says, I'm going to break with you and I'm not coming back. and I'm going somewhere else. That's not what eternal security, or, or that's not the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And that's why Johnson says it's to be rejected strenuously. Now let me give you some Matt Boyer's words. This is the way I kind of think of this. What does persevering in faith mean then? It means this to me. If, if I'm in union with Jesus Christ, because of His grace and my response of faith, I'll hang on to Jesus as Jesus is hanging on to me. I don't want to be anywhere else, do you? Once I understand the goodness of Jesus Christ and I entrust myself to Him in the fullness of faith until I'm some, in a mystical way, united with Him, then it's just in the DNA of sheep. They don't want to go to another flock. He's their shepherd. Things are good here. Life is good in my flock following the good shepherd. Why would I want to go somewhere else? So they won't fall into apostasy. But we all know sheep are fickle little things. They wander. They're unpredictable. They're easily distracted. You know, that's one of the most common ways in my heart that I know I'm a sheep and I desperately need a shepherd is because I, get so, I can easily get distracted from the shepherd. So sometimes fear does that, sometimes anger does that, or frustration. And those are kind of big things. Little things can distract me from following Jesus, like stuff, stupid stuff, like a golf game or a television show or whacking my finger with a hammer. It's just little stupid stuff. Because sheep are fickle. And we drift and we wander. Just like that little guy at the end of the video. <laughs> Uh-oh. 
I'm going to do everything I can to get back to the flock. So even though we are preserved by Jesus, we are fickle creatures who wander. And the hymnist said it great, I am prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Now, this is hard enough to think about if it's your own wanderings. It's maybe even harder if you have a loved one who has wandered. Maybe that child who has wandered, and we prayed with the family after last service about their wandering child. It's hard. Maybe it's even a spouse who's wandered. Maybe you're here this morning, your spouse isn't here because your spouse is wandering. It's really tough. Maybe it's a brother like Jess and her story. And her brother Justin was his name, um, was a believer in Christ. And one of the beautiful gifts that God gave to Jess and her family was at Justin's funeral, the man who discipled him years prior after he came to faith in Christ was there and testified about his authentic faith and his union with Christ. Even though he was one of those sheep who got caught away and who drifted away. Not into apostasy, but far from the shepherd. If you have a loved one who's fallen into apostasy, pray hard for that loved one. Never rest from praying for them. And when, if God gives you opportunity to have any communication with them, proclaim gospel to them as if they've never heard it. Do that with love and grace and goodness. And if you have a loved one who's, who's wandered and, and you know that their faith is authentic, just pray for them and ask the shepherd to do what? Go get them. Because what did Jesus say? Sometimes the shepherd will do what? He'll leave the 99 to go after that little straggler who's wandered. Ask your shepherd to do that. And then a personal illustration for, or, or uh, application rather for us today is just to stay with Jesus and his flock. That's where there's security. That's where no one can snatch them out of my hand, Jesus said. Three things that Jesus describes about his sheep. Number one, they believe, unlike those skeptical Jewish leaders who had heard the same message, by the way, that the sheep had heard. They just didn't believe their hearts were hard. So believe, and believe means holistic trust. It's complete and total surrender, which takes you different places because now you're in a different group of people. Now you're with the flock that follows the shepherd. That's one implication of authentic faith. Secondly, listen to Jesus' voice. We've been talking about this throughout the series. Listen to his voice. We gave you some principles even in week one of that and realize that takes some time newborn lambs, they don't recognize the shepherd's voice. It's just all noise to them. But as they hear the shepherd crying out and then notice the flock moving in rhythm with that shepherd and they go with the flock, doesn't take very long to realize, ha, that voice is worth following. So stay with the flock and move with the shepherd in union with him. It's a beautiful picture. Follow Jesus with the flock. That's the third point. Jesus says, my sheep not only listen to my voice, but they follow me. And in that kind of beautiful picture, there's security. Because we're preserved by the shepherd and we will persevere in our faith. We want nothing else than to stay with the flock. 
And yet, Jesus taught us clearly in this text we have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy our life. And his strategy is to send wolves in our midst. And sometimes Jesus says, watch out, wolves come in what? Sheep's clothing. It can be tough to recognize. But once recognizable, realize their agenda is to attack the flock in order to scatter it because a scattered flock is a vulnerable flock. So it's so important that we stay united as an expression of our union with Jesus and the Holy Trinity. That's where the security is. That's where no one can snatch us out of his hand. So when Jess realized after her and Lindsay went away to that hotel, it became pretty clear to her. It confirmed, I think, what she was already thinking. I'm in a major battle of darkness here. And the forces of evil are oppressing me and want to isolate me from the flock where I'm secure. So she called out to me, came to me, and come on up, Jess, let's tell the rest of the story because this is really the fun part now. And uh, that day you, I think that mic is on now, so you don't have to do anything with that. Let's pull these up a little bit so people can really see your smiling face. Um, she came to the office that day and told me all about this and you were convinced by then that this was the oppression of evil and it didn't take me long to embrace that interpretation um, and we talked and I asked some questions and, and you told me that this was so bizarre to me then and, and still is now and it's, it beautifully illustrates the point uh, a part of this that it, it seemed the, these images of your deceased brother seemed to be more prevalent on Mondays. Tell us why you think that was and tell us about that. Yeah. Um, it happened different times during the week, but Mondays it was always the worst. And I believe that's because Austin, my husband, was in an Everyman a Warrior group. And on Monday evenings they would get together um, after our kids would be asleep and meet. And just a few weeks before my brother had passed, Austin started book two in his group. And book two is, is strongly about um, just being a godly spouse and being a godly parent. So I believe that the enemy saw that Austin was going to this group and meeting with his brothers in Christ and getting really good nutrients and how to come home and lead our family through just a really, really hard time, um, through the worst time of my life and suffering. So I think he saw that opportunity and he used it to further isolate me um, away from my community, away from the flock. I think trying to isolate me away from Austin. And this is what this deceptive rascal of an enemy that we have does. He will take what is good. A, a godly man investing with other brothers in his own development and growth and discipleship and use it against us. And this is consistent with what we see of our enemy in the Scripture, even all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Remember what the serpent said to Eve? Did God really say? He tried to deceive Eve into thinking that the truth of, of God's Word was somehow inaccurate. And then he tried to do the same thing to Jesus in his temptation in the wilderness. He used the very Scripture of truth to twist and deceive. And so that's what he tries to do. And, and did you, I didn't ask you this, the other services, so sorry, we got to spice this up a bit. Um, so 
Did you ever feel on those Monday nights, did you ever have feelings, anything like this, like, where are you? You're supposed to be here, and I'm struggling, and I'm alone, and the guy who should support me the most isn't here. I mean, did any of something like that happen sometimes? If it didn't, that's great. That's okay, but... Um, it did. Hmm. And um, that's really not something I've ever confessed out loud. Um, I was so happy that Austin was going to this group because I, I was hmm. seeing a change in his life. Hmm. And I also know that the men who were in that group with him um, were really caring for him well during this time. They were always asking and praying for our family. So I, hmm. I felt guilty again, right, about feeling hmm. like he should be home with me when hmm. I, I knew that he needed to be there. See, and that's just how the enemy works. If he can isolate us even from our spouse, even in a godly marriage. But look, do you see how Jesus gets the upper hand on these things? Because as that's happening, our brother's being equipped more and more to be a supportive, committed, caring, loving husband, which became huge and still is in this journey. All right, so we talked that day, and church, our, our best resource in this kind of battle is prayer. Um, very direct, pointed prayer, and that's best accomplished within the flock, the body of Christ. So I asked Jess and Austin to give me some names of some couples they were close to within the flock that they wanted to be there, and I think we had three or four couples, and then another couple from the Crossroads Napoleon Church that came brought... I brought a guitar that night. Lenita and I and Terry Johnson, our senior elder who heads up our prayer team, we all gathered at their house a few days later for the specific purpose of praying against the oppression of the enemy. And so we worshiped. We sang a few choruses. We read lots of scripture. Just kind of nothing was prepared spontaneously. We just kind of did this stuff. And then eventually we uh, dispersed throughout the house and we prayed very poignantly, very specifically against the oppression of the enemy. And I was walking around kind of praying. It's hard for me to be still sometime in those situations. So I'm walking around praying and I was just compelled to go into the garage. So I started opening doors. I wasn't sure how to get to your garage. I think I saw a closet or two. But um, eventually found the garage because that's where I think most of you know Lindsay is my daughter-in-law. And I stood in that garage, and I didn't tell any of you guys this yet. I probably shouldn't confess this, but sometimes I get so frustrated and angry at the evil one in these places, I almost asked that night, I said, show up, come on, show me. And that didn't happen, praise the Lord Jesus and His goodness protected me from what you guys had to see. But I just prayed, God, encamp your angels around this place. That image is not welcome here. That's the image of death, and you are the God of victory. Get rid of it. And then, uh, I don't know, there wasn't, there wasn't anything sensational that night. It was just kind of what it was. Did I ask you to tell about your perspective of the night yet? No. Go ahead and do that. Um, I'm yakking more than you are. This is your time. So. <laughs> um, that night was, was really, really powerful for oh. me. Um, because the whole evening that they were there, I don't know how long it lasted, maybe two hours or so, and the whole time I'm just weeping mm. um, so much that I, I was not even like 
I probably, I don't even think I, I spoke much because I just couldn't. But I was just pleading with the Lord. Um, and he, for the first time in five and a half months, I just felt this overwhelming peace that um, can't be described by anything else than from our Lord. So I knew that he was working that night. I knew he was there with us, that he was very present. Um, I was so overwhelmed with just the love that was in that room for Austin and I, um, and that they were like grieving alongside of us mm. over somebody who they didn't even have a personal relationship with. And I just felt so overwhelmed with just gratitude and love. Um, and I think that that is where the Lord took me. He took me to a place of peace. And there's two great pieces of evidence of that. How'd you sleep that night? Solid eight hours. First time since he had passed. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. You bet. You bet. And by the way, the anniversary of that prayer night is in a couple days here, the year anniversary. And have you seen that image of death since? I have not. <laughs> And then you referenced earlier on the video that you were going to a therapist, a grief counselor. Um, what happened the next week when you went to see him? Yes, yeah, so um, my grief counselor was the one who really encouraged me to take that, that night away with Lindsay, but I had not told him that that had happened yet. Um, he also obviously didn't know then about this prayer night. So I sit down and he, there's no formal greeting. He just like shoots back in his chair and I'm kind of staring at him. And he said, what has happened since the last time that we met? He said, Jess, you have a light in your eyes again. <laughs> I've done pretty good all morning here, too. You just, you just wrecked me. Um, And uh, throttle back now again. Before the freedom and before that light, there was a lot of nights when you'd wake up from nightmares and be alone. You wouldn't wake your husband up because, again, you just felt so in isolation. And yet God didn't let you alone then. What are some ways he expressed his goodness to you and even through the flock in those really dark moments of isolation? Yes. Um, so nighttime was always the hardest. And I remember I would a lot of times finally fall asleep between like 3 or 4 a.m. And one night, this was the first night that this has hap had happened early in the journey, but I woke up and I realized I'd only been sleeping for probably about 40, 45 minutes, but I had a text message come through within that 45 minutes of me having this nightmare that woke me up. And it was from a member of the flock. And they texted me Isaiah 4110. And... Um, just said, Jess, I don't know why, but I woke up and you were on my heart and I needed to reach out to you. And that happened numerous times throughout this where I would just wake up and people would send me a song or even just say, hey, I'm thinking of you, I love you. Um, and I, that literally, that cannot be explained in any other way than the Lord, the Holy Spirit pressing on them, stirring them from a slumber to reach out to me in a really hard time. 
light even in a dark place. That's what our shepherd does for us when the evil one has attained some level of success in isolating us and bringing that darkness on us. Jesus comes after us. And I want you to tell one more story. When you and Linz were away at the hotel that night, again, something that really can't be explained other than the sovereignty of Jesus happened to just so affirm his mm-hmm. pursuit of you. Just tell us about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, when I have told this story before, this is the part of my story that um, is kind of my favorite part to share, but it's sometimes in the past been more difficult and the Lord has just really given me a gift of confidence in this that I'm just here to tell his story and he will use it and he will defend it. So Lindsay and I are sitting in this this area of the hotel and it, it's a larger area and with tall ceilings we were absolutely the only two people in this room. We were sitting in the corner and right after, I'm talking seconds after Lindsay has made this um, like confession to me about what she saw, we're both just sitting there and we're crying, realizing that what what we were, you know, up against kind of, and the lights in the room started turning off one at a time. So starting farthest from us, one at a time. Yeah, those are ceiling lights like this, right? These kind of commercial bright. Yes. Um, And they even came with like a noise. Um, So it was just, it was terrifying. And it just got closer and closer and it was pitch black in this room and there was one light that stayed on and it was the light right above Lindsay and I. And then all at the exact same time, all of the lights turned back on again. And um, it was so incredibly powerful. In that moment, I knew that the Lord had, had, he'd given me a visual gift to see that Darkness is going to come close, and it's going to try to overtake you, but I will not let it. Mm. How about that, church? Yeah. (laughs) Jess, thanks for being transparent with us, for sharing this story. It's a powerful thing, so relevant to all of us, so uh, thank you. Thank Jess, if you would. Now we're going to celebrate this. We're going to do like three songs. The band's going to come. And, um, church, I don't want you to think, I don't want you to go away this morning going, oh, that was weird. Because this is what Jesus told us was going to happen. It's what our enemy does. But I don't want you to think either there's a demon under every bush. We don't have to go out of here with fear of that. Um, we just need to be aware that we have an enemy. And when that enemy tries his hardest to isolate us and to separate us, don't wander farther. Come back and cry out to Jesus. What's the best thing a sheep who can't use language and doesn't have hands to do anything, what's the best thing a sheep can do when they've wandered off into darkness? Let's all do it. Come on, here we go. You ready? You've wanted to do this throughout this series. I know you have. Nashwan, lead us. What should a sheep do? that's the best thing you can do because your shepherd has already left the flock he's already looking for you because you've wandered off he knows your fickle heart he knows your enemy and how your enemy is trying to isolate you the best thing you can do is cry out to him 
And Scripture promises that when you do, you will find Him because He will find you first. And that cry doesn't have to be intelligible. It doesn't have to be logical. It just has to be, Jesus, help me. If you're in a wandering place this morning, just cry out to Him. Your shepherd will bring you back. If you have loved ones who've wandered, that's an awful pain. Pray for them. And let me pray for you now. I'm just really compelled to do that this morning as we wrap this. Lord Jesus, we just praise you that you are a good and faithful shepherd. And that because you are in union with the Father and because we're those believers who are part of your flock, who listen to your voice and who follow after you, we're close to you and no one can snatch us out of your hand. And Lord Jesus, I thank you that when we wander, because we're prone to that, we feel it, Jesus, we know we do. You come after us. And so I want to pray this morning for the loved ones represented in this room, people who aren't here, but who are loved by people who are here, who have wandered. We pray for them, Lord, that you would go after them. And that you would find them. That you would impart faith to them and repentance to them, that they would come back to the flock. And Lord, if there's some that, that have apostatized and completely severed relationship with you and disowned you and rejected you, and somebody in this room still loves that person, Father God, we pray for them. That you would change their heart. That you would put something in their life that would turn them, that would break them and allow them to cry out to you. And Lord Jesus, for those of us who may love those people, if you want to use us in some regard, then empower us with courage and opportunity and initiative to speak the love of you, our shepherd, to those who are apostate, that they would come and be held secure in your hand. Lord Jesus, we want to celebrate, so empower us now to respond to you with praise, with exaltation, with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. As we do that, we're going to, the band's going to do one song here that, um, as you know, at the end of the service, we usually give you opportunity to, to have some prayer. We want to give you that opportunity in the midst of this song. We think contextually it's a really good time to do that. And so I'll be up here, other pastors, prayer team folks, if you can go to the, uh, where, you, where you usually go under the prayer signs. And if you just want us to pray with you this morning, I prayed with one couple with, with some anxiety about some health issues, played with another one because they have a son who's a wanderer. Um, we'd love to pray with you during this song, and then we're going to sing two more, and, and then just really let's really celebrate. So um, let's stand and uh, worship.